I sometimes get asked, what's your favorite letter? And I say, I'm not allowed to have a favorite letter because, you know, if, if you favor one letter, it's, it suggests that you disfavor other ones. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. Design Matters is on summer break, and we'll be back with a new season in the fall. In the meantime, we're sharing some of the live interviews Debbie has recently done in front of an audience. The audio isn't always perfect, but the interviews are lively. This one, with the great type designer Matthew Carter, took place in March 2018 at the Type Directors Club in New York City. Matthew, the first thing I want to ask you about is your handwriting. I understand that you believe that your handwriting is pretty appalling. Is that true? Yes. Has it always been? Yes. Why? Has it been appalling? Why is it appalling? I wish it were better, but I got caught up when I was a schoolboy. There was a revival of interest in handwriting in England, uh, italic handwriting. And I wanted very much to do it, and I got manuals and so on about it. But I could never make the pen go where I wanted it to. I could see in my mind's eye the shape it should make, but I couldn't make it. Uh, so with the result that my handwriting or my pen lettering in general is really awful, and I envy friends of mine who are calligraphers and can make beautiful gestures and shapes, but I, I can't do that. So you needed to use French curves to make your curves originally? Yes. <laughs> yeah, but you know, because I couldn't, you know, take a broad edge pen and make the shape that I wanted to, I started laboriously to draw the outline and fill it in. Again, when I was still a schoolboy, and that's what type designers do. So that you know, kind of led me in that direction, I think. Okay. And, and you've never sought to improve the quality? You've just accepted that it was appalling? Yes. Fair enough. Matthew, you, you grew Why up... Why do you ask? <laughs> what, what, what? <laughs> um, I always like to start with a quirky question. Yeah, I sure. feel like it sort of breaks the ice. Yeah. Um, you grew up in the midst of World War II. Your family was uh, evacuated. Yes. You were not able to take many of your possessions. How did you come to understand that as, as a young boy growing up and suddenly being pulled from your home and your yeah. things and having to start an entirely new existence, essentially? Well, I was only two when the war broke out. So I don't think, you know, as I was six, seven when it ended, I don't think I knew any other life. So. I was used to uh, sleeping in the shelter at night. I was used to going out in the morning and seeing bomb craters in the street or watching the, the contrails of, uh, of uh, battles of planes overhead and all that. So, you know, the, the sense of being in a war was, was very strong, you know. Little boys took a certain delight in all of this, you know, because you could find bits of shrapnel in the ground and that sort of thing. Um, but it, but you know, it wasn't that I knew a pre-war existence and then the war came and it was very different. Uh, I, I didn't know any, anything else. I do have one uh, memory of, uh, of the wartime that, that I rather cherish, which was, you know, uh, Mr. Churchill, the Prime Minister, would occasionally address the nation, particularly when things were going really bad. Um, and my mother would get me out of bed and make me listen to him. I can't now remember what he said. Well, of course, I've since read. But there was this sort of feeling during the war, okay, so you're only three or four years old, but you're in this too. You better listen to what Mr. Churchill says, you know? So, so I have that strange memory of, of, uh, of being made to take this all rather seriously and, and so on. And, and as to be so said, little. Yeah, yeah. And then we were evacuated. We had lived south of London, which was very unhealthy, because uh, after the Germans started sending the doodlebugs and the V2 rockets to hit London, some of them fell short. So if you're living south of London, you were very vulnerable to 
ones that didn't quite make it all the way into London. So, so yeah, we, 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 uh, we moved to the country. Did you feel when the war was over any sense of relief? Were you confused oh, yes. by? Oh yes, yeah. Oh yes. No, I mean I had, you know, you didn't have quite the same experience in this country, but I had a very real sense that someone was trying to kill me and my mum. You know, I mean that was that was very clear from the precautions you had to take. So when uh, VE Day came along, I remember we went up to London to celebrate. I mean, it was it was amazing, amazing feeling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did those early? Do you feel like those early experiences shaped you in any way? I, it's really hard to say. I, I I don't really. I, I can't think of particular ways. I mean, you you mentioned that. If you were evacuated, you didn't have very much, would you? You know, you, so. and I, I do remember. Uh, I, I think this is a genuine memory that, um, in order to uh, help me learn to read and so on, my mother cut some letters out of I don't know linoleum. It or was some linoleum. Sort of yes, oh, gill oh, sands, you, I believe. <laughs> I don't know why you're asking me. You know all this. <laughs> it's yeah, so they I, find out too. You know. She, <laughs> My mother was very much in, in tune with, with design at the time. And so I think I sort of learnt the letters of the alphabet in Gil Sands. So thanks to the war. <laughs> now, I think she did that so that she could help you learn to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. exactly. Um, now, your father was a typographer. He, he was. was a designer. He was a type historian. And, and I understand that as a kid, you got in trouble for pouring liquid clay into one of his type molds oh, God, in yes. an attempt to make a piece of type. Yes. How yes. old were you? Uh, that must have happened. My, my father spent most of the war in what was then Palestine, in Jerusalem, in the censorship. He was too old for military service, but he spoke a lot of languages, so they, they put him there. And he came back, I think not immediately, not in 45, probably 46. So that was probably in 1946, so I would have been about, uh, about seven, ready, ready to go off to boarding school. And, yeah. he, so, and he did send you off right, right around then. Was it because of your bad behavior or no, your no, no. mischief? No, 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 no. You know, uh, it, it was not uncommon for kids to go to boarding school at a very early age because of the war. Right. And that, I mean, the war was over by then, but, but the schools were used to it, parents were used to the idea and so on. And, you know, <laughs> once in later life, I said to my mother, you know, uh, sending me off to boarding school at the age of seven, wasn't that rather tough love? And she said, well, we wouldn't have done it, dear, if you hadn't insisted. So why, I thought, at the age of seven, I wanted to go, I have no idea. So just don't, I can't answer that question, but off I went and spent you know, all of my schooling in, in boarding school. Yeah. Now, I read that you thought of yourself, your younger self, as, as a misfit. Well, th this is, yeah, boy, uh, this is going to take some explaining. You know, I, my second school was one of what in England are called public schools, which means exactly the opposite. They're private fee-paying schools, supposedly the sort of best education money can buy. But I think at the time I was there, I left equivalent of high school in 1955, I think they were really bad. And I've known other people who had the same experience. Alan Fletcher, who went to the same kind of school, Alan was a few years older than me, he had the same experience. I think those schools, and I, I think they got very much better quite soon. I've met people who went to my school. I once found myself talking to Peter Gabriel at a party, who was at the same school as me 10 or a dozen years later, and it was obvious talking to him. It was very much better when he was there than when I was there. There was a lot of sort of Victorian claptrap about traditions and so on. Anyway, I think the school didn't know what to do with you unless you were going to be a bishop, a general, or a banker. And since I obviously weren't going to be any of those, nor was Alan, by the way, um, <laughs> they really didn't know what to do with us. So, and we weren't trying to be rebellious or, or wanting to be misfits or anything. We just didn't fit into the academic structure of the school. Um, so, uh, I mean, Alan had more self-confidence than anyone I've ever met, but I, I didn't. And so when I left school, I kind of did think of myself as 
as not having much in the way of prospects, you know, because the school had told me as much, you know, the sort of no hope, you know. What are you, what are you going to do with yourself? You what know? were you imagining you were going to do with yourself? You at know, that point? I didn't have a very clear idea. I mean, <clears throat> I did have some conversations with my dad about this. And he thought that I should go and work in a museum. Uh, he had worked at one time for the stationery office, the government printer in England, and they produced uh, booklets, uh, books for some of the museums. And I think this had meant he had had to go to visit various curators at the Victorian Albert Museum, wherever it was, to discuss doing a, I don't know, a book on medieval armory or uh, armor or embroidery or something like that. And I think he envied the job of curators and those museum curators. You know, you spent your time in scholarship and acquisitions as people above you died or were promoted, you moved up. And he th I think my dad thought that he was probably right, that this would be a very nice life. Of course, not long afterwards, the whole idea of museums changed radically and it became hours of fun for all the family. And uh, I, I don't think I'd have liked that. But anyway, I didn't go into a museum, but that's as close as we got to any, any idea of what I might uh, do with myself. Now, I understand that your early formal type education began with an internship at Enschede in the Netherlands. Yes. Um, you were supposed to work in a variety of departments at the company, but ended up doing all of your work in the type foundry where you studied punch cutting. Yes. So I was wondering if you could share with the audience what punch cutting is. I will try to do so. Um, yes. So I had, a, I had a year to fill between leaving high school and starting at Oxford. And my dad had very uh, friendly relationships with this excellent printing company, Enskides, still exists, by the way, uh, in Harlem, in the Netherlands. So I went off there, as, as you said, to be an unpaid trainee for a year. And Enskides were very unusual. In fact, they were probably unique in that they were a printer, but they still made their own type in-house. And they made it by very obsolete methods, by, by hand, essentially. They had a very distinguished type designer at Enskede's, Jan van Krimpen, and his types were all cut by hand by a remarkable man called Paul Radish, punch cutter. Punch cutting is a matter of engraving letter forms at actual size on the end of a piece of steel, uh, hardening the steel, and then driving that into a copper blank to make a matrix in which you cast type. And this, I mean, nobody knows exactly how Gutenberg worked. Uh, that may not have been exactly how he did it, but probably, you know, certainly by 1500, that was how type was made and continue, continued to be made until the invention of pantographic punch-cutting machines in the 1880s and so on. So this was a real throwback. But so I spent that year sitting between Radish and his assistant, Hank Drost, who was enormously helpful, learning a, a completely obsolete and useless trade. Uh, <laughs> but, but I did get very interested in it. And so when I went back home, supposedly to start university, I really, you know, in those days, the English school at Oxford was Anglo-Saxon. I would have had to learn. You well, know, you were, I think you were going to study medieval beer, English. Yeah, beer, yeah. beer wolf and stuff. I, having been out in the world a bit, I didn't really fancy this. So... I got my nerve up to tell my parents that I didn't want to go to Oxford. And I expected a really mauvais quart you know, because my dad was very academic. He had been to Oxford. He worked at the university press at Oxford. And I thought that this would not go down at all well. But to my astonishment and relief, they were very supportive. They said, fine, you know, don't, don't go to Oxford. Start work, you know. <laughs> I guess I saved them the college fees, but <laughs> which they were probably grateful for. But uh, so I did. I mean, I, 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 I never went to, uh, to university or college of, of any kind. Um, and I did just sort of start working, doing, doing anything I could. I did a little bit of engraving. I cut some punches. I cut some binders, brasses. So I really learned to make type before I could design it. But I had to sort of teach myself to design type or lettering and so on because I couldn't possibly make a living as an engraver. I mean, there was nothing, nothing to be done. Can you explain to the audience what a smoke proof is <laughs> and how you make one? 
Yes. This was one of the most fascinating things that I learned in doing my research. You know, uh, just before we sort of went on the air, I mentioned to you that immediately after I, I was at Henskade's, a Canadian designer, Carl Dare, uh, did the same thing. He, he followed in my footsteps in a way. And Carl had had some experience uh, with film. And he filmed a sort of day in the life in the type foundry of, of Radish and his assistant and so on. So if you had seen that film, and it's available, uh, I can't remember exactly how you find it, but it's called Gravers and Files. And it, it would show you what a smoke proof is. When you're, when you're cutting a punch, you obviously want to see what the leather looks like. The only way to do that is to hold it in the soot of a candle flame so you get a little deposit of black soot on the face of the punch and then dab it on a piece of coated paper normally to leave a little impression. So that is what you do. You, you look at it, and you see the, the letter printed at actual size and so on. And inevitably, when you first look at it, it's wrong, and so you work on it more. Um, it's very difficult to persuade students that you know, whoever it was, I don't suppose it was me, but the first time somebody uh, digitized two letters on a computer and sent them to a laser printer and they came out at real size in real time was the first time in the history of type making that any type designer saw their work in that way. I mean, smoke proofs, you can imagine, it's immensely laborious. When I was at Linotype, if you wanted trial matrices uh, cut, you had to wait because it interfered with production and so on. Same thing in the photocomposing days. The, I mean, the factory was very good to me, but there were often, you know, with matrices, it would be weeks of waiting with a, with a, with a, a trial font. It would probably be uh, several days at least before you could see what you were doing. So smoke proofs were the sort of, uh, uh, were, were the punch cutter's only way of getting some sort of, uh, idea of what this letter might look like uh, before you struck the matrix and went to so, the, so you heated thing. up the metal type you then were able to get some soot to be yes. able to then press it down yes. on on some sort of coated paper yes. to see what yes. it would look like yes Wow. You don't believe me? No, I do. Oh, I do. I do. It's true. I, yeah. I just, I, it's just hard to believe how yes. far we've come. It is. It is. And, and also, I can't imagine that looking at the type that way would really be that accurate. Um, it, it's, it's accurate in this sense that the image you get is very precise, provided you do it right. But of course, you get no clue about spacing, how the letters look together. You can... You know, we used to do this. We used to make smoke proofs. We would cut them up, tiny little pieces, and paste them up, you know, to make an alphabet or words. Unbelievably laborious. But still, it's, it's not really uh, a very satisfactory way of, uh, of doing it. But it was, the, it was the only way to do it in those days. What yeah. made you decide not to go to Oxford after you had planned to go? Well, I think it was just the... the, the uh, this year I'd spent and, and got interested in, in type, although, as I say, the particular craft, I, I mean, it takes more than a year to become a punch cutter, but I had some sort of journeyman proficiency, you know, I could sort of, I kind of knew what to do. Um, as I say, I, I couldn't make a living that way, but I, I, I had got interested in type. And I think that, you know, although my dad uh, never pushed me to sort of following his footsteps. He said, you know, who needs two typographers in the family? You know, conversation at the dinner table would be much more interesting if you went and did something else. But then when I did say that I'd gotten very interested in this, um, he, he, he was very uh, supportive in that, in, in that sense. But I think, I think it was a combination of my liking the experience that I'd had at Enskade's and not liking the prospect of learning Anglo-Saxon that, that decided that for me. <laughs> you were really struggling initially to find work, to yes. get a job. Um, I, you, you wanted to, um, you were drawing alphabets for modernist designers. Yes. And wanted to um, 
develop contemporary sans serif type during a fairly conservative time in the country. And yes. you started working with Alan Fletcher and Colin Forbes, two of the original partners at Pentagram. Yes. Um, talk about that experience. First of all, how did you, did you meet Alan through the boarding school experience? No, no, no. Um, here's what happened. Uh, I moved to London in 1958, I think it was. And in 1960, I had a great stroke of luck, which actually did sort of change my life. Um, I was given a sum of money, I think it was 300 pounds, but 300 pounds went a long way in 1960. And what I chose to do, to this day, I'm not exactly sure why, I chose to spend it on coming to New York. So I spent a few weeks in the spring of 1960 here, and it, I was gobsmacked. I mean, I went to Pushpin, I went to Shemai from Geismar, I went to Liu Balin, they all handed me around, you know, and so on. And I saw graphic design that I didn't know existed. I mean, I was amazed. But the thing that really turned me on the most was going to Mergenthal the Linotype. Uh, Mike Parker, who I already knew, had been working there about a year, I think, an assistant to Jackson Burke, who was the director of typographic development at Mergenthaler. Mergenthaler, by the way, then were in a sort of dark satanic mill down by the Navy Yard in Brooklyn between the Pratt campus and the Navy Yard. Um, but I loved it. I, I really loved the factory atmosphere and so on. And I, I kind of uh, let it be known to Mike and Jackson that I loved to work there. There was no job for me at that point, and actually, in retrospect, that was a mercy because I don't think I had anything to offer at that point. Um, but then in the intervening years, I, I did go there in 65, so in the f intervening five years, when I got back to London, you know, sort of charged up with everything I'd seen here in the studios in New York, I did make, I can't remember exactly how it started, but, you know, the fact that Alan had been to Yale and, and worked in this country, uh, I did do quite a lot of work for, uh, for him and for Colin, uh, for Bob Gill when Bob came over and joined an ad agency in, 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 in London, for Derek Birdsall, uh, David Collins. There were, there were a handful, not, not a great many, but there were some very, very good graphic designers in London at that time who wanted to work in a sort of international modernist style. But the typesetting trade in, in Britain was incredibly conservative at that time. You know, Helvetica was released in Switzerland in 1957. In 1961, we could not get Helvetica set in London. Why not? No one had it. You know, they had the monotype faces, they had some Stevenson Blake grots and so on. Nobody had, nobody imported Helvetica. You know, nowadays if somebody <laughs> introduces a new typeface in, I don't know, in, in, uh, here or in Berlin or in, uh, in, in Tokyo, People are using it in seconds, you know. The fact that there should have been a four-year time lab, time lag between introducing a face like Helvetica and being upset. But that, in a way, I benefited from that because uh, I got to uh, draw a lot of lettering, sometimes whole alphabets, sometimes logos and so on, for those designers. And this was a really great training for me because they were very exacting and they made me get it right and get it on time and all that good stuff. So it was really, it was really a very uh, fortunate uh, thing I kind of fell into. And then another interesting thing happened that, you know, uh, Bob left the agency and, and uh, uh, Fletcher Forbes and Gill was created, I think, in 62. And Bob said to me that he was thinking of hiring me as his assistant in the new company. And I was pretty chuffed about that because I knew all three of them well, you know, I'd worked with all of them and I thought this would be a very interesting job. But then Alan took me aside and he said, you don't want to do that. I, you know, really? Why not? You know, I thought this sounded like a great job. And Alan said to me, he said, if there's any designing to be done, it's going to be done by the three of us. So I took his, his advice. I mean, I was sort of disappointed, but I... I didn't join the company. And I, I realized when I thought about it that this was a very Allen-like, strange sort of vote of confidence because what he was saying to me was, don't come here and be an assistant. Bugger off and be a designer, you know, which is sort of what I did. It took a while, though. I mean, you were doing all sorts of things. You were sign painting. Yes. You were doing technical drawing. Yeah. 
When, anything I could find. Anything that you could find. So what, yeah. what would you consider to be your first big break? Huh. Um, well, you know, some of the work I did for those guys uh, has, has stood up in my uh, memory, at, uh, at least. But I think, you know, there were various kind of strands, I think, in, in, in my life when I was young and didn't really have a direction. And, you know, I, because of Enskadeus and so on, I, I had certain ideas about fine printing and fine typography and all that sort of thing. You know, the British English private press movement, Dove's Press Bible, the, Kelmscott, Chaucer, and all that good stuff. But then at some stage, and I'm not exactly sure when, I, I read a remark, something that Stanley Morrison wrote. Mr. Morrison was the, the doyen of typographic authorities in my parents' generation, both as a scholar, historian, and as a practical matter. I mean, he advised Monotype on their famous series of revivals and so on. And Mr. Morrison wrote somewhere that printing was invented to multiply information and it's the multiplication that is the art of printing. When I read that, it hit me like a ton of bricks because that's not what I thought the art of printing was at all. I thought it was all limited editions and fine paper and all that sort of stuff. But it really stuck with me in a, in a big way. And I think that was why I was so excited to go to Mergenthaler in, in 1960 because I really, there was some part of me that wanted to be with the machines, you know. I mean, um, what Morrison said implies that things like newspapers, magazines, telephone directories, manuals, textbooks, timetables were very important. They weren't set in fancy type on fancy paper and so on. They were set by machine. And so I really, uh, I really was... Uh, interested in, in, in getting into the sort of industrial aspects of, of typography rather than the craft aspect where I'd started out. So in, I think, 62, 63 or 64, I, I got a job with Crossfield Electronics in London. Crossfields were the manufacturing agent for the photon machine, as it was called here. It was called the Lumitype in, in uh, Europe. Um, so the machines were made either here or in London. But the fonts for Europe were all made in Paris at De Bernier-Pena. Uh, and so the best part of this job, which I had for a couple of years in London, was I would say at least a week out of every month I was in Paris uh, specifying fonts for our customers, designing type when it was necessary and when there was something missing that I needed. And this brought me in touch with Adrian Frutiger, who was in charge of the... Uh, development of the type of Lumitype in, in Paris. Uh, by this time, he wasn't there full time. He came in once, twice a week. He had his own studio where I also used to go. But he, you know, I, I, I got to know him very well and, 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 and admired him enormously. But he also, rather like Alan, did, did me a great favor. Um, you know, n nobody sort of stood at my sh over my shoulder and said, this is how you do an A, not like that, like that. You know, I, I never had instruction of that kind. I had to sort of figure that out, I guess. But what Adrian and the other people in the Paris studio did for me was, you know, I arrived there with absolutely no credentials at all. Um, but they treated me like I knew what I was doing. And I think the point in your youth when you start to do good work is when somebody expects you to do good work. When somebody is kind of fussing over you and supervising you closely and they're kind of nervous that you're going to screw up, you're probably going to screw up. But when they kind of leave you alone and say, okay, you, you do it, you know, we'll, we'll tell you the drawing scale, how many, how many units to the M and that sort of thing, get on and do it. And that's what I got from Adrian. I mean, with absolutely no justification. I mean, he had nothing to base this on. But that, that was very, that was very uh, sort of formative for me, I think, you know, that, that someone of his eminence would uh, take me seriously, <laughs> which I didn't deserve at all. So that, that period at Crossroads was very useful to me. But meanwhile, 
I had kept in touch with Morgenthaler because that's really where I wanted to be. The, the liner film, their machine, was actually better than the photon machine. It had a better quality output. So I kept in touch with Mike. And in 65, Jackson Burke retired. Mike moved up to the director's job and he hired me. So I moved immediately to Brooklyn. And I think by that time, uh, I did have a certain amount of pent-up stuff that I was ready to, to work on. And I worked like a maniac when I first got there. Uh, what does that mean? Very long hours all weekend and, and everything. But was, you must have loved it. I did. I absolutely loved it. I mean, I realized once I got there uh, that, that this was for me. You know, this, this made a lot of sense. A, I... a lot of stuff had sort of helped me get there. But that's really where I wanted to be, yeah. You've said that the biggest challenge for you in the evolution of type production was going from 3D to 2D in the 60s. And did you have to completely change what type was in your mind to be able to do that? Well, I, yeah, when I, when I both at Crossfields uh, and the Paris studio, <clears throat> and when I got to Mergenthaler, I had to make production drawings. You know, I had to make black and white drawings, convenience scale. And as we were talking about earlier, respect to my appalling handwriting, uh, I don't actually draw very well. So yes, French curves, straight edges, every, every dodge I could, could use. But yes, I had to make production drawings because the way fonts, photocomposing fonts were made, the, my drawing became the image, the production image. I mean, it was re-photographed, but if I made a mistake in the drawing, there was a mistake in the font. So it was a very direct process. So yes, I, ha I had to learn to make uh, good quality, you know, good edge quality, uh, technical drawings and so on. Um, and I continued to do that you know, for, for, for a long time. Yeah. You've stated that you don't depend on inspiration. <laughs> that you don't get bolts out of the blue, That's and that true. if I were to give you a blank sheet of paper on a Monday morning and asked you to design a typeface, the paper would still be blank on Friday. Yes. The same would be true if it was a blank screen, I may say. Yes. Okay. I, I'll, I'll tell you, I have a, a friend who's an artist uh, here in New York, and uh, she got in touch with me a few years ago because uh, she's a printmaker, and she was doing a portfolio of prints about Bob Dylan. And on some of these prints, she wanted uh, to include the lyrics from his songs. And she wanted a special typeface for this. And so I went and met her and I, several times and loved her work. And we had a number of conversations, of course, about how, what sort of typeface this would be and so on, you know. So when the point came for me to start work on this, I said to Leslie, you know, when, when you're doing your prints, wh where do your ideas come from, you know? And she said, well, I put on Bob's music and then ideas come, you know. Well, I better try that, you know. <laughs> so I sit down in front of the computer, I put on some Dylan and I say, okay, Bob, give me an A, you know, and uh, <laughs> nothing. B, B for Bob, nothing. C, you know, in the end, I had to do the work, you know. Uh, inspiration didn't strike. Uh, I had to do it the hard way. Uh, which is generally my, uh, my method. So yeah, uh, I can't remember who I heard say it. Somebody said, inspiration is for amateurs. You know, uh, designers show up, put in the time, do the work. Yeah. Now in 1981, 81, yes. you and a small group of people founded Bitstream, yes. recognizing the potential of digital type and licensing. Yes. 1981. Yes. How did you get a sense that the world was going in that direction well, that early? You see, people nowadays, there's a sort of fallacy nowadays that digital type started with the Mac and the PC in the mid-80s. It had been going for 10 years by then. Uh, Linotype and other, uh, some other companies produced uh, very high-speed digital typesetting devices. They replaced the phototypesetting devices. And so they needed type and because I was a linotype designer, uh, I, I got to work on, on digital type. And this was a curious period in the history of linotype because they had had, it wasn't exactly a monopoly, but uh, linotype had had an enormously strong position in the typesetting market, particularly in this country. But that began to 
get eroded as more and more companies came into the business. Compugraphic, AlphaType, and, and others. Their market share started to dwindle. And Mike uh, had run a very aggressive typographic development policy during the 70s based on the success of the phototype setting machines. But it became rather clear to us that with the sort of declining sales, Linotype might not be able to continue as vigorous a type development program as the one we've been running, which have been very profitable. But with companies like Monotype and Linotype, you have to remember that 90% of their revenue was machines. 10% was type. Type was a machine part. It was only there to make the machines work, allow the machines to work. So however profitable the type may have been in itself, it was still only a small part of the business as a, as a whole. And Mike and others of us at Minotype thought, you know, there are some very exciting digital companies coming into this business with no typographic background at all. Cytex was one of them, Israeli company, whose background was in, in fabric and weaving and, and so on. But they had some geniuses there, and, and they developed these incredibly high-powered and very expensive digital typesetting machines. But they had no type. So they could, of course, hired a bunch of type designers if they could have found them and developed a library, but that would have taken years, you know. So they wanted a source of, of type. And so Mike suggested to the management at Bergenthaler that instead of just making type for Linotypes machines, we should make it for all comers. Anyone should be able to come to us and license type. But the management just, they couldn't bear that thought. They said, you know, our type is only for our machines. Uh, forget it. So we left and founded Bitstream, four of us. In other words, we... We were obliged to do outside linotype what we wanted to do from inside linotype. So we did do Bitstream, and uh, we had a, some very good designers. And we had to develop some digital type very fast for Cytex and Camex and other companies that were... They've been forgotten now because everything got blown out of the water by the Macintosh eventually, you know. But there were a great many companies at that time. I should say a great many, but a large you know, a substantial number of companies in this whole-page digital, very powerful typesetting things that did type and text and illustration and everything all at the same time on, on the page in digital form. So that's how Bitstream came into, into business. Uh, and uh, I stayed there 10 years. Yeah. What made you decide to leave? Uh, again, a number, of, a number of factors, you know, at that point, of the four founders, Sherry Cohn and I were the only two remaining. Mike Parker had left, Rob Friedman had left. When Sherry and I had had some disagreements with the other members of the board, the outside directors, um, about the sort of direction of the company. There was a new president coming in who was a very nice guy, but we thought that his background, his, his skills were not what the company needed. Um, but the most important thing was that, you know, I'd worked there for 10 years. I'd only designed one typeface in 10 years. What was I that was, face? It was called Charter. I was in my mid-50s and I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to design a typeface again, I better leave, you know, because I don't want to spend another 10 years in meetings deciding who got which parking space and so on, you know, which is <laughs> how my life was spent, particularly since I didn't have a car. Um, so <laughs> so uh, Sherry and I quit relatively amicably, as a matter of fact, started our own company. Uh, David Burlow, who had also worked at uh, Bitstream, had left about, uh, what, uh, maybe 18 months before, before we did to start the Font Bureau. David and I have you know, been friends for a very long time. I'd kept in touch with David since he left, and he seemed to have a viable business, you know, uh, doing custom work and so on at the Font Bureau. So I think that encouraged Cherry and me to take the plunge and uh, set up our own company, you know, kitchen tabletop type founder. Uh, so uh, we did, and we, we're still at it. Yeah. Let's talk about Georgia. Georgia, yes. 
How did how did Microsoft approach you? How did you get that project? What how, tell, tell me everything about Georgia. Everything about Georgia. Uh, right. Um, in the midnight, I'd say about ninety three or ninety four. This was after Sherry and I had started our company. We were approached by Microsoft uh, with a very interesting proposition. You know. Up to that point, people, and not only in graphic design, but really in general, had kind of regarded the screen as preview mode. You looked at the screen when you were typing something or when you were reading something, but really what counted was when you printed it out, you know. But Microsoft, in their position, had the forethought to realize that this was going to change, that the screen would soon become the priority that people wouldn't necessarily print out, wouldn't have to print out. Obviously, you would have to be able to print out, but most people would sort of live on the screen. And they said, you know, all of our screen fonts, obviously up to this point, have been adapted from pre-existing printer fonts. What else? You know, you take Times Roman and Helvetica and you try and make them work on the screen. And the screen then, you know, mid-90s, relatively coarse resolution, very poor photometric resolution. I mean, pixels were binary, on or off, black or white, no grayscaling, anti-aliasing, none of that good stuff. So they said to me, how would I like to design a couple of typefaces? First of all, a sans serif, and then maybe we'd do a serif, whose first priority would be legibility on the screen. And I said to them at first, that philosophically this is the wrong decision because a typeface that is designed for a specific technology is a self-obsoleting typeface because the technology always changes and improves. And I knew this to my cost because in the early days of, uh, of digital type, I had made a typeface that was meant to kind of mitigate the problems of the early digital typesetting machines, which were kind of cranky, frankly. So I, I said, you know, we shouldn't put the time and effort into doing this because before we know it, the engineers in whom I have total faith will build better screens and all our type will be wasted. They said, well, we've got news for you. Screens will not improve for at least 10 years. I can't remember what the bottleneck was, technical. <laughs> so, you know, but we're stuck with these screens for at least 10 years. And I said, oh, 10 years, that's different, you know. Let's do it, you know. So the, I look back on design of what became Madonna and Georgia as being very, very congenial projects for me because contrary to what a lot of designers think, I really like working with engineers. You know, again, I was with the machines, so software in this, in this case and so on. And tackling these problems of coarse resolution screens, what do you, how do you make a bitmap? that's going to work on a coarse resolution screen at a very small size. Um, and it's, it's, you know, Charles Eames said something about he was conscious of working within constraints but not of making compromises. I think if you understand the constraints, you don't have to make compromises. And so what I did at Microsoft when I was given this job was obviously I studied as much as I could what happens to fonts on the screen and various disasters that, that occur to them. And so I learned from that and we sort of edged our way into this. Uh, and, you know, th that is the kind of job I, I really like because that's not giving me a blank screen on Monday morning. That's giving me a screen that's a big mess and saying these fonts are really awful, the spacing is bad, the bitmaps all fall apart, fix it, you know. That's for me. I mean, that's, that's what I like to do. So uh, I got really into that. And we, uh, we did Vedana first. We found that <laughs> uh, it was originally intended for a menu font, for a system font. Um, but one of the things I'd done to it to make it more legible was space it out a bit. And they found that some of the boxes in menus in 
Finnish or German or something rather busted. So we did a narrow version called Tahoma. And then I did, uh, so, so uh, Vedana came, became the sort of text face and, and uh, Tahoma became the system font. Then I said, okay, while we're at it, do a, do a serif design. So that's how Georgia came about. And that was done in the same way, uh, studying the pixels on the screen and doing bitmaps and then wrapping the outlines around them and then having Tom Rickner, a very wonderful hinter, uh, do the work to, to make them work on the screen and that sort of thing. So that, that was all a very favorite uh, project. And, and, and Microsoft were absolutely dead on with their predictions because I've since read that 1996, which was the year that Verdana and Georgia were released, was actually the sort of tipping point when there were more digital communications than printed communications. That, that was when that happened. So the Microsoft was absolutely right on target there. So yeah, that was, uh, and I, I became extremely fond of the people at, <laughs> at Microsoft that I worked on in that, uh, in that project and so on. And I, you know, I, I, I look back on it with a lot of pleasure. I think, I think it was one of, the, one of the projects that came my way that I, I perhaps was uh, sort of uh, equipped to, to deal with from previous experiences that I'd had. And you don't get royalties. <laughs> Would I be here if I did? <laughs> 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 no, no. I mean, th this was completely understood. You know, originally, uh, in the very first instance, Microsoft had not considered giving these fonts away. But then they thought this would be a really good idea because we would be improving the legibility of our software and so on, you know, and our hardware. So, uh, so let's do that. So you can't really uh, pay royalties on something you're giving away. So, so no, no royalties. But you know, we did factor that into the price. Uh, you know, I, I can't complain about what Microsoft paid me for that work uh, because it did take into consideration there'd be no residual uh, revenue from this whatever one one shot buyout. How are you feeling about the Kindle these days? Because I read an article in The Economist where you were avoiding, this was back in 2010, you were avoiding reading anything on the Kindle because of what you deemed typographic sins. This was me? Yes. Really? Yes. Oh. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and then a couple of years later, I, I understand that you yeah. did have a Kindle um, and you were able to read using your font, Georgia. Um, but I, I wasn't sure if, how you were feeling about the typographic sins. You know, to be honest, I don't, I don't remember saying that, and I don't exactly <laughs> remember what I had in mind. It probably wasn't so much the, the font as the way the type was handled, the, what you might call the layout and so on. on the, you know, I, don't, I don't really know. Okay. But it is true that, 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 that I, I, I don't... Uh, I read more on paper than I read on the screen, but I, I do read on the screen. And I, if I say it who shouldn't, I, I do read it generally in Georgia. Yes. Why wouldn't you? Well, I don't know. There might be something much better, but I, I, uh, I, 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 <laughs> I, get, I, I guess I've got used to Georgia by, by now. Yeah. So now I'm going to read you um, a quote by Abbott Miller, um, another Pentagram partner. Yeah. He has written... Within Carter's oeuvre, there is no sense of a recurrent aesthetic. He has been a problem solver, Snell Roundhand, Bell Centennial, a historian with Big Caslin, a synthesizer with Sophia, and a radical with Walker. And you yourself said type designers come in two different kinds. Of the first, Gerard Unger is a very good example, as is Gaudi or Zapf. I envy these people because they are designers of genius whose personality comes out in every typeface they design. Yes. I'm sure if Gerard designed a new typeface, the first time I'd pick up a newspaper or a magazine, I'd know it was by him. I read his handwriting. His personality shines through in everything he does. I don't have this kind of genius. I'm more of a chameleon. And my question is, Matthew, Really? <laughs> yeah, th th this, is, this is absolutely true. I mean... I don't know that the MacArthur Foundation would agree. 
I'll talk about that as well if you like. But yes, I, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is. I think this is very obvious that there are these type designers historically and, and contemporarily as well, who do have this very very strong style uh, that that comes through in everything they do. I mean, Gerard, who is a very dear friend of mine, we had a project once to do a historical revival. We're going to do a Fleischmann. And we, we sort of looked at it, and Gerard admitted after a while, he said, the problem is, he said, you know, Fleischmann goes in, but what comes out is owner. And that's not quite the same for me. I mean, I don't say I would do a good Fleischmann, but I think it's easier for me as a comedian to get inside the heads of other designers in a way, because I don't have this very strong style. I mean, what Abbott said was, was very nice, but what does Snell Roundhand and Bell Centeno have in common? I mean, they, they, there's, there's no personality there that's, that's coming through and so on. You guys all. buying this? No, no. I mean, I, I'm not being coy here. I mean, this is, you know, I, I mean, I've thought about this and I've talked to other designers about it. So I, I think that the, the consolation for not having this kind of powerful, sense of letter forms and so on that shines through everything you do is that you are more adaptable. And I have enjoyed that uh, by doing historical revivals and a variety of different kinds of work, you know. I mean, I, I've never turned down a job uh, because I like, I like the, a new challenge and so on. You know, I, I, I would never say to a client, oh, I, I'm not the kind of designer that does Baskerville, you know. I, no, you know, I'm, I'm only a sans serif. I, I don't have those kind of uh, feelings. I'm, I welcome any any uh, uh, project. So, so yeah, I've sort of made peace with myself about that because, as much as I uh, envy Gerard and Herman and uh, Adrian and others who had that uh, very personal style. Um, I'm not sorry in a way that uh, perhaps it's a little bit easier for me to get, you know, to channel Caslin or Baskerville or something like that. Yeah. So let's talk about your MacArthur grant. What was it like to get the phone call? Tell us about that. They set me up beautifully. Um, I, I got, a, I got a, an email, uh, I think this was 2010, um, from a, a woman student at ITT in Chicago, saying that she and a, a bunch of colleagues of hers were going to start a project on the relationship between design and technology, and they thought my work with type might be relevant. Would I, would I be prepared to do a telephone interview? This was a very well-written email. You know, I get these, all designers get these emails from students from time to time. And this one was particularly sort of well, well expressed and so on. So I said, of course, you know. And she wrote back to say, well, um, we're going to start this in the, in the new uh, academic year in September and so on. May we uh, fix a date to call you? I can't remember what the day was, but date and time. And I said, absolutely. I look forward to it. Put it in my diary and so on. Uh, so <laughs> at the appointed hour and the appointed day, the phone rings, you know, and I, I pick it up and I expect to be talking to this, what sounds like a very intelligent, interesting woman, student. But the voice is a man's voice. And he says, where are you expecting a call from so-and-so? And I said, yes, I'm looking forward to it. He said, well, I'm really sorry to tell you, but she doesn't exist. And I said, oh, oh, that's, what? That's a shame. She sounded so, you know, so, so nice. But then he said, I don't think you'll be sorry to hear from me. I said, oh. And he said, do you know what the MacArthur Foundation is? And I said, uh, uh, Yes, I think, I think I do. And he said, do you know any MacArthur fellows? And I thought for a minute, and I, I remember Chuck Bigelow got a MacArthur and a, a, another friend of ours, Carl, got a MacArthur. If I'd spent some more time, I could have thought some more. So I think I, I can think of two. And he said, well, now you know three. And I said, oh, yeah. Well, this poor guy, at this point, he must have thought we've got a wrong in here, you know, because I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't picking up what he was saying at all, you know. <laughs> So, but eventually, 
managed to sort of persuade me. They did call me to tell me that I had a MacArthur. And of course, your first reaction is it's a friend of yours, you know, who's pulling your leg, you know. That would um, be a mean, mean pulling of yeah, the leg. Yeah, yeah. But then the first thing I said to him, once, you know, once the penny had dropped, I said, aren't I a bit old for this? And he said, well, most of the MacArthur's do go to people sort of in their 30s and 40s, you know, when they've established a, a career and we want to... But we do sometimes give them to people older, 60s and 70s and so on. I said, oh, oh thank you. That's great, you know. So, you know, as you probably know, MacArthur is an amazing thing. I mean, there are these other grants, Fulbrights and Guggenheims and so on, where you have to apply. You have to tell them what you're going to do with their money. And then you have to account for it at the end. Not so with the MacArthur. In fact, the very last thing, this guy, I, I'm blanking on his name, which is shameful, but... Um, he said to me, at the end of the conversation, he said, this is the last you'll ever hear from me. Talk about hands off, you know, no strings attached. So then the next day you get a FedEx letter that spells this out. You know, oh, maybe this is real, you know. <laughs> and then eventually you start getting checks. Um, but you never, you never have to account for this. You never have to tell them what you're doing. Uh, I can't say, I mean, they have been in touch with me once or twice since because... You know, they, they, they give these uh, awards to a very wide variety of different people. But you're the only type designer that's ever gotten one. I think so. I checked with Chuck about this. When Chuck got his, he got his very early, I think like the second year they existed, 82 or something rather. He had not yet designed a typeface. Since then he has. Uh, so he admitted that he wasn't a type designer when he got his. So, so, so that... that may be true. I probably spoiled it for some others. But, um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, sometimes they, they once or twice called me because they were thinking of, uh, of someone who they thought I might know, might be able to give them a reference and, and so on. Um, you know, obviously I adore them. I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> I, I... The only problem is, you know, they, they spend it out, send it out to you over five years and when it stops, there are some withdrawal symptoms. <laughs> <laughs> At the time you, you uh, when it's the It's taxable, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, I actually, I had dinner last night with somebody who had won one, and yeah. he took the money and decided to pay for the college education of his three children with it. Yes. Um, but also yeah, It's actually that, very interesting because I've run across a number of people who have these to talk about them, uh, to talk to them about what they did uh, uh, spend it on. Yes. I love what you said, though. You said that um, it's very nice at my age to be told by someone that we expect more from you. Well, that really is what's good about awards or probably any of them, you know. I mean, you, I mean, that's the way I've always taken them, you know. I think, I think if somebody, you know, whether it's the Type Directors Club or whoever it is, if they give you a, a, a medal or, or, or an award or, you know, the old Chrysler Awards uh, and so on. It's very nice, uh, but it does make you think, um, you know, they've, they've had some faith in me to give me this award. I'd better live up to it, you know. So I think, you know, particularly when there's <laughs> generous cash involved, you feel you've, got to, <laughs> you've got to do your best, really. Yeah. I wish that I had four more hours to be able to talk to you about your work and your life and your remarkable career, but I only have about five or so more minutes left for this interview today. Yeah. So I have a couple more questions. Sure. Um, you are one of the few people that has worked across just about every medium in the creation of typography. Yes. Yet you have said that you don't have any favorites or regrets. Of technologies, do you mean? Of your work, of the oh, work that you've work. done. No favorites and no regrets. No, I'm not allowed uh, to have favorites. Um, I forget. Why not? Why not? Well, you know, I can't remember which author it was. Somebody asked her, who was it? What was the favorite of the book she had written? She said, well, I, I can't tell you because the others are listening. Oh. And I think, I think I feel the same way. Um, yeah, I, I do get that question. Uh, sometimes about my own work or, or, or other people's designs come to that. And 
people are, kind of don't believe me when I, when I say I don't, I don't really have a favorite. I mean, obviously, it tends to be the thing you're working on at the moment. And it's like, you know, I sometimes get asked, what's your favorite letter? And I say, I'm not allowed to have a favorite letter because, you know, if, if you favor one letter, it's, it suggests that you disfavor other ones. And you can't do that as a type designer. You know, if you look at a typeface you're designing and you like some of the letters more than others, you've got a lot more work to do because they've all got to be at the same level, you know. You can't have a really nice G and a crappy P, you know. I mean, you, you, you can't have favourites in that sense. So I, I, I genuinely do not. But I think like any type designer, what I tend to react to is not a typeface in a sort of objective way, but how it's used. And, you know, I could pick up a book jacket or a record cover. I mean, we've seen some things today. And, and uh, look at it and say, well, that's a really good use of a typeface. I really like that, you know. Or the opposite and so on. And oddly enough, where one's own work is concerned, you sometimes learn more from seeing what you might think is a misuse of your typeface than seeing it used in the way that you anticipated people will use. It's very instructive. Have, to has see. that happened a lot? Have oh, you yes. Seen, yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Any, yeah. any examples you might want to share? Well, no, not, but I mean, typically one thing, you know, I mean, it's, it's bad typography, but people will reverse type out of black or a dark color or a, or a, or a photograph, uh, and the typeface will break up. And that will tell you that that particular size of that typeface would not work for that purpose. And so that makes you think, well, should I have given it a stronger physique with that in mind, you know, so it stood up to that kind of abuse a bit better. Um, so, so, yeah, uh, uh, but, but just in general, uh, I mean, it's very nice when you pick up something and you recognize it's a typeface of yours and it's been beautifully used, you know, but but I don't at all uh, dismiss the less uh, things that you might at first glance think were less promising because maybe something was in there for you, for you to learn. Yeah. You told Graffice magazine that it's very important at the end of the day for me to know I've made something. And I, I love that. I think somebody needs to design a T-shirt with that. Um, <laughs> but do you still feel that way? Yes. Yes. I mean, I don't make something in the very tangible way that I did when I was 18 at Enskede's, you know. I don't, I, I don't have a piece of steel in my hand at the end of the day. But I have some digital data, you know, lying around on the computer and so on. So, yes, I, 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 I mean, I think that I always like that when designers um, talk of themselves as makers, you know, uh, there was uh, Elizabeth Addis, I think her first slide was addressed by Issy Bihaki, who always has said that, 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 you know, he's a designer and maker. I know one or two other fashion designers have said the same thing. So to me, designing and making are sort of the same thing, you know. Uh, I, I can't separate them really in my, in my mind. So if I say I want to have made something at the end of the day, that's much the same as saying I wanted to have designed something at the end of the day. It's similar, similar reaction I would have. Yeah. You've laughed and said a couple of times when people have asked you about retiring <laughs> that your retirement plan is death. Yes. Is that still the plan? That is still the plan. Oh, good. I hope it's not imminent. I, you know, we all hope I'm it's not, not imminent. I'm not planning to retire. Uh, just yet, but uh, yes, I don't, uh, I can't afford it. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> MacArthur to the, uh, oh, it notwithstanding. No, I, I, I still work full time. Uh, I don't know that my stamina is quite what it was uh, when I was. Well, you uh, got to give 20, something but, for the rest of us to but, be able to but, do. Uh, but I, uh, no, I, 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 I love it. I, I, I still uh, work, work away, yeah. Well, Matthew, it has been an absolute honor to be able to interview you. My pleasure. My I, pleasure. I told Matthew that um, the only reason I hadn't asked him before to be on Design Matters was because I was too intimidated to Oh, right. I'm so ask. intimidating? Really? <laughs> <laughs> a little, hey. little bit. But um, 
Well, thank you for preparing such good questions. I mean, you know more. I don't know why you asked me, because you know all of this. I mean, well, <laughs> we need to have it confirmed. Oh, okay. Nothing else. Okay. So, all right. And, and just thank you for doing the most amazing work and for making the world so oh. much more beautiful oh. with oh. everything you do. Matthew Carter. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. 